Okay, good morning everybody. Welcome to Spring Meadows Sunday School, if I could have your attention. Um, we're continuing our series on the attributes of God. Last week we studied the doctrine of immutability and just a little bit of review. God is immutable and unchangeable. God can neither, never, neither gain nor lose attributes. God neither became nor is becoming. His life never began nor will it ever end. God can become neither better nor worse. And God's decree, his purpose, his plan is unalterable. And in our lesson last week on immutability, we discussed how to interpret those passages of Scripture which mention God repenting or regretting. For example, when we looked at the discussion between Moses and God in Exodus 32:11 to 14, we decided that if we pressed the apparent meaning to the ultimate, what would it teach us about God? Not only would we think incorrectly that God relented, but we would think incorrectly that he relented because Moses showed God a more excellent way. And we saw that the correct way to analyze this use of the anthropopathism relented was by understanding that it is a literary device to show that God had answered Moses' intercessory prayer. So uh, speaking of that, let's, let's open with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your self-revelation in Scripture. And as we continue to study your attributes this morning, we pray that you would flood our hearts with understanding of the truth and confidence in your everlasting love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, how should we understand God's inner life, ad intra? You know, we're, we've talked about that use of ad intra and ad extra. Ad intra works inside the Trinity. How, how, how are we to understand God's inner life? Does God have emotions? And if, sh if so, are his emotions like ours or unlike ours? And does God suffer in himself his own being, his essence? Or is God incapable of suffering? This is our topic today. And today is the last of God's incommunicable attributes on my list. Impassibility. Okay? With an I. Yeah. Not impassibility. This is the problem you might have on the freeway if you were trying to pass my wife's car. It's impassable. Where? I did, didn't I? Thank you. Impassibility. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> Anyway, it's with, it's with an I, not an A. So, um, so uh, we'll begin by talking about God ad intra, you know, in his, the internal life of the Trinity in his ontological transcendence, and we'll end with God ad extra. So this is number one on your handout. The immutability of God implies the impassibility of God. Okay, we talked about immutability last week, so that implies the impassibility. In Latin, im means not, and passio, or passibilis, means able to suffer. Impassibility means that God is without passions, 
just as he is without a body. This means that God is not subject to suffering, to the onset of passions or moods or changes of mind, emotional fluctuation or cravings for fulfillment. When we studied the doctrine of divine simplicity, we learned that God in his essence cannot be built up of parts more basic than himself. So if God were able to suffer, it would mean that he depends on that which is not God, parts, in order to be God. God is complete as he is. He's not, he's not waiting to be built up by suffering, okay? God is not incomplete. Impassibility means that God cannot suffer and is incapable of being acted on by an external force. So the key ingredient of the doctrine of impassibility is that God cannot experience any change in his intrinsic state of being. This is number two in your handout. Impassibility is the property of God's nature which is utterly steadfast, not subject to moods or temperamental changes of any kind, much less of being overcome in any way. God cannot experience changes of state due to his relationship or re interaction with human beings. The created order cannot alter him in such a way as to call him, cause him to suffer any modification, modification or loss. If God is immutable, then he is impassable, since passability, being sufferable, implies change. To say that God is impassable is to shield him from loss. And this is number three in your handout. From the time of the death of the last apostle to the 19th century, Orthodox Christian theology has held as axiomatic or self-evident that God is impassable. That is, that he does not undergo emotional or temperamental changes of state, moods, fits, or spasms, and so cannot suffer. That God is not like us, a creature of the moment with moods. Moods. God's not moody. Or fleeting passions. But toward the end of the 19th century, a big change began to occur within Christian theology such that even today, many Christian theologians hold as axiomatic that God is passable, that he does undergo emotional changes of states and can suffer. So the doctrine of God's impassibility has really fallen on hard times. And in this era of a suffering God and of Holocaust theology, it's become popular, very popular, to discredit the doctrine of impassibility because the idea of a suffering God resonates with our relational instincts and it appears to be great comfort in times of summary, uh, suffering. A uh, not-so-recent article in Christianity Today asserted that the doctrine of impassibility is actually just an outmoded relic of Greek philosophy that undermines the love of God. And this is one of the big accusations that we see regarding a lot of what I'm teaching, is this, that's just outdated Greek the, uh, philosophy. In fact, noted reformed sovereign grace theologian Wayne Grudem denied impassibility in his recent systematic theology. He said, I have not affirmed God's impassibility in this book, God, who is the origin of our emotions and who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotions, 
And Grudem got this one wrong. God is both passionate and he is impassable. He does not suffer. God is neither internally indifferent to suffering nor is he eternally overcome by it. So one of the things I want you to really know is why impassibility has fallen on hard times. Many, if not most, Christian books you pick up on suffering or on the problem of evil, especially books written on a popular level, will offer God weeps with those who weep as one of the answers to the problem of pain. God, it is said, is as much grieved by our grief as we are. He hurts as much or more than we hurt. And to say anything less in today's theology is to make God into an unfeeling monster. So impassibility has fallen on hard times because, first, we live in an age that prizes authenticity. And nothing is thought to be more authentic than brokenness and pain. Suffering is our culture's currency for the real thing. So there's a desire to have a God who understands our suffering and who participates in it with us. Only by such participation, it is argued, can redemption occur because only then has God committed himself to the reality which he himself created. And the second reason it's fallen on hard times is because, and this is number four in your handout, a lot of people assume incorrectly that a suffering God is a more caring God. They argue, what meaning can there be in a love that is not costly to the lover? They say that God must stand in solidarity with our pain. He heals our suffering by sharing, by sharing in it. A God who cannot suffer cannot love. Only a suffering God can help, they say incorrectly, in order to make God more relatable and relevant. And that's the big thing. People want a God who mutually relates with us. There's give and take. Okay? They want to dethrone God. And the last reason um, impassibilities is fallen on hard times is because divine suffering is thought to be one of the best answers to the problem of evil. And we're going to talk a lot more about problem and evil when we get later into our series, but um, they say that after two world wars, a Jewish holocaust, all these economic crises, and now COVID-19, they say, how can we worship a God who is immune to our pain? So with all this contention about impassibility, why did I decide to include it in our study? Because it is deduced from Scripture and is stated in our confession and catechisms. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2 says, and this is number 5 on your handout, there is, but only, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, without passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. So does the Bible tell, tell us anything about God's emotional life? Well, just like the scripture we looked at for immutability last week, Exodus 32, 10 to 14, 
there is scripture that seems to suggest that God does have passions, that he does suffer, that God is affected by the actions of his creatures. And this is number six on your handout. Scripture occasionally ascribes changing emotions to God. At various times, he's said to be grieved in Psalm 78, verse 40. Angry in Deuteronomy 1, 37. Pleased, 1 Kings 3.10. Or joyful, Zephaniah 3.17. And moved by pity in Judges 2.18. And laughing, a laughing God, I like that one. Psalm 37.13. But we've talked about how classic Reformed theology treats such biblical statements as anthropopathisms, figure expressions of speech ascribing human passions to God. They are the emotional, the emotional equivalent of those physical, physical metaphors known as anthropomorphisms in which hands, feet, eyes, or other human body parts are ascribed to God. So we know very well that God is spirit, as it says in John 4:24 and this, that a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as Luke 24, 39 tells us. So when Scripture speaks of God having body parts, we naturally read such expressions as, as figures of speech. So this is number seven on your handout. God's affections, like every other aspect of his character, simply cannot be understood in purely human terms. And that is why Scripture employs anthropopathic expressions. When Scripture uses images, metaphors, and figures of speech to describe God, they are to be taken figuratively and not literally. Okay? So when God's self-revelation speaks in creature language, and theologians would say God speaks to us analogically, not univo univocally is... God is God, and if God spoke us to us univocally, we wouldn't understand it. I mean, finite beings cannot understand the infinite. So when God speaks in creature language, we have to remember that these literally devices still tell us something. In God's hands, metaphors and anthropopathisms are revelation. For example, in Psalm 18, 2, where it says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So the words rock and fortress are metaphors to communicate God's stability and permanence. Well, what about Genesis 6-7? to uh, We looked at this passage last week where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. No, we looked at this one in Doctrine of Asidi and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, as it were. So when we looked at this passage in Lesson 2, we saw that the doctrine of Asidi tells us that God cannot be a victim of his creation's obedient, disobedience, that nothing in creation can alter him in such a way so as to cause him to suffer any change or, or loss that God is self-contained. Okay, nothing from the outside can impact him. Which is what grief is, um, as the explaining what it said in the verse, 
Grief is an emotional response to loss. So the word grieved in that passage tells us in descriptive language about God's holy and eternal hatred of sin. So last week we learned that we must interpret such narrative passage of Scripture by didactic or teaching portions of Scripture, such as Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So if we try to find too much theology in narrative passage, which passages which use point of perspective language, creature talk, we can easily go beyond the point of the narrative into serious errors. And we have to acknowledge that we're all too prone to think of God in human terms. But God says in Psalm 50, 21, you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you. Again and again, Scripture reminds us that the affections of God are ultimately unsearchable. Isaiah 58, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Scripture also clearly states in James 1:17. God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But many Christians are reluctant to conclude that these anthropopathisms are to be taken figuratively in any degree. After all, one of the greatest comforts to any believer is the the reassurance that God loves us, and that love, if stripped of passion, they think, it's a lesser kind of love. They... They say, doesn't the doctrine of divine impassibility therefore diminish God's love? No, no. God, what we're saying is God doesn't fall in love. God is love, okay? We'll talk more about love in a minute. Reformed theology says if God's creatures can literally make him change his mood by the things they do, then God really isn't in control of his own state of mind, much less his divine nature. If outside influences can can force an involuntary change in God's disposition, and I want to put emphasis on that word involuntary, okay? That's what people who don't like impassibility, they want God to be involuntarily uh, changed in his disposition. But if that's true, what real assurance do we have that his love for us will remain constant? And this is precisely why Jeremiah cited God's immutability and impassibility as the main guarantee of his steadfast love for his people in Lamentations 32, where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So if God is eternally unchanging, If his will and his mind are as fixed and constant as his character, how could he ever experience the rising and falling passions we humanly associate with love, joy, exasperation, or anger? And this is number eight on your handout. Because we recognize the wavering emotions attributed to God as metaphorical, then we must say that they do not mean 
that God is literally subject to mood swings or melancholy or spasms, S-P-A-S-M-S. Spasms of passion or temper tantrums. Since the onset of a, sp of a spasm of anger or jealousy is a change, our God cannot change and so cannot be subject to such outbursts. <clears throat> so when we try to contemplate how God's divine affections can be fixed and constant, we might incorrectly begin to imagine that God is inert and unfeeling. In fact, since the God of classic theism, and, and that's what I've been teaching, well, I'm teaching classic theism here, the God of classic theism is not capable of being hurt by his creatures. Many theologians insist incorrectly that he must also be capable of being relational, and that's what they want. They want a relational give-and-take God. They say that he's detached, unfeeling, apathetic, and devoid of all sensitivity, that he is a metaphysical iceberg like Mr. Spock on Star Trek, you know, the guy, the Vulcan with no emotions. Open theism, and we've picked on open theism a lot here, and I... Some people say that they are not currently the powerhouse that they once were in popular theology. But I'm just telling you where a lot of this comes from. Open theology says incorrectly that our only options are one, God is a tempestuously passionate God who is subject to hurts that may be inflicted by his creatures like when they sin. Or two, he's the utterly indifferent God of Reformed theology who at the end of the day looks a lot like an emotionless rock. So here they draw a caricature of the impassable God who is psychotically withdrawn, indifferent to the needs of his creation. And in one of those internet theological forums, a minister who hated the doctrine of impassibility wrote, the God of the Bible is much more emotional than we are, not less so. And someone sarcastically replied, really? Does your God have even bigger mood swings than my mother-in-law? <laughs> and the point was clear, even if made indelicately. It is a serious mistake to impute any kind of thoughts to God that are cast in the same mold as human passions, as if God possessed a temper subject to involuntary, again, that word, in, involuntary oscillation. God's impassibility is a quality of his aseity or divine fullness. So unlike us, God is not dependent upon anything outside himself for emotional fulfillment or satisfaction. And this is number nine in your handout. So impassibility is not impassivity, which means without emotion. Impassibility is not impassivity, unconcern, or impersonal detachment in the face of creation, not insensitivity and indifference to the distress of a fallen world, not inability or unwillingness to empathize with human pain and grief, but simply that God's experiences do not come upon Him as ours come upon us. For His are foreknown, willed, and chosen by Him, and are not involuntary. Involuntary. They're not involuntary surprises forced on him from outside apart from his own decision in the way that ours regularly are. Here's how J.I. Packer describes the doctrine of impassibility. He says, this means not 
that God is impassive and unfeeling, a frequent misunderstanding, but that no created beings can inflict pain, suffering, and distress on him at their own will. He is never his creature's hapless victim. So the historic Christian doctrine of impassibility believes not that God is a stranger to joy and delight, but rather that his joy is permanent, not clouded by involuntary pain. We don't deny him his emotions, but we do deny that he has emotional spasms. He is free to reach out to us in our suffering without being overcome by it. So the second part of the Westminster Confession of Faith 2.1 that we started with earlier, uh, after it says immutable, immense, eternal, and incomprehensible and all that, says that God is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and with all most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who by no means will clear the guilty. So God does have emotions, but they're probably better called affections, okay? Emotions are something that happens within you. Affection is something you do, is work, it's something you do. So probably best just to call God's emotions uh, affections. And he is passionate. The confession has no problem saying that God is on the one hand immutable and impassable, while on all the other hand calling him loving, long-sufferable, and describing his hatred for sin. This is not an indifferent God, not a me metaphysical iceberg, not a Mr. Spock. So we maintain that God does have, what number is this? This is number 10 on your handout. We maintain that God does have emotion, but God's emotions and affections are never passive and involuntary, but are always active and deliberate. Active and deliberate. God certainly cares. And I've got verses cited after each one of these. He actually understands. He is truly compassionate. Uh, he really loves so much so that Christ died for his people. The perfection indicated by each of these terms is real in God, but they did not come into God's possession by way of passion. That is, by way of unfolding emotive experiences to which he submits himself. So, God has emotions, but does he get goosebumps? No. That's the point of this lesson. The emotions as experienced by humans often include a physiological dimension, sweaty palms, the flushed face, rapid heartbeat, goosebumps, and other physical phenomena like um, a flight or fright response where, you know, our bodies are filled with adrenaline, okay? So the outside stimuli to which you and I respond, circumstances or events that normally provoke emotional responses are often beyond our control. We have no control over the premature death of a family member that brings grief or the reckless driver on the 215 who provokes our anger or the newborn granddaughter that prompts joy in our hearts. But since God is in an incorporeal spirit, he doesn't have a body, reformed theologians have correctly rejected any physiological dimension 
to God's emotions because he doesn't have a body. His body doesn't make adrenaline. His face doesn't get flushed. This is number 11 on your handout. God stands transcendently above time and space and he is absolutely sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. He's planned every event that has or ever will come to pass within the matrix of human history. He actively controls every event and circumstance so that nothing can take him unaware or by surprise. Since God is the supreme ruler and governor over all things, we cannot attribute physiological reactions and responses that would make him seemingly the pawn of outward circumstances and therefore vulnerable. Any questions up to this point? Yes. We're going to talk about Jesus in a minute. Okay. With that, I just want to know if that would be an example of impassibility in, in Jesus as on earth. When he was in the boat with... Jesus him. is both impassable and passable. Okay. And we're going to talk about Jesus here. Let's, let's talk about the Trinity if there's no other questions. Let's talk about the Trinity first, okay? Because um, it's usually how we conclude these lessons. So God is impassable in his one essence. Okay, that's, that's one of the things we've been talking about. God has one essence shared by the persons of the Trinity, his, which is his nature, his being. And in that essence, God is perfectly fulfilled and satisfied in the perichoretic, that's the mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the fellowship of the three persons in the Trinity. It is out of this self-sufficient aseity that God relates to us as his creatures. He is not dependent upon us for love or emotional completion, but he generously condescends to bring us into the rich blessing of loving fellowship with him. Nothing can make God love less or love more. He only loves in one changeless way, perfectly. Perfectly. So let's talk a little Christology here. Shawnee, maybe this will help with your question. Let's talk about Jesus, the Son. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, his perfect love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus is God, right? Yeah. Just did, did Jesus suffer? Yeah. But the mystery is that the impassable Son, the second person of the Trinity, truly and really died. God cannot die, and yet somehow the Son of God really and truly suffered and died. Acts 20, 28 says that God obtained the church with his own blood. So let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus become a man? So that he could suffer. Because God is impassable, he can't suffer. Jesus became a man so that he could suffer. This is number 12 in your handout. Christ's principal mission into the world involved suffering. Only the incarnation allows God to undergo the suffering that was needed for redemption. If God already, prior to and independent of the carnation, suffers, if God is therefore passable, then we're confronted with the problem of showing 
why the incarnation is still needed. And you can think about that one for a while, but um, to me, that's enough just to defeat the concept of a passable God right there. Christ had to be fully man, passable, and fully God, impassable. And the Heidelberg Catechism helps us to understand that. By the way, the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, questions 38 and 39 are great on the same subject. They just take up a lot more space, which I didn't want to waste in a 45-minute lesson. This is number 13 on your handout. Question 16 of the Heidelberg says, Why must he, our mediator, be very man and also perfectly righteous? And the answer is because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who himself is a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17 of the Heidelberg says, Well, why must he, our mediator in one person, also be very God? And the answer is that he might, by the power of the Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness in life. So Jesus, the man, the human sacrifice, also needed to be God because only God could exhaust the infinite wrath of God of the righteous God against sin. And I hope that makes sense to you and why Jesus had to be both man and God. Maybe Hebrews 2, uh, 10 to 18 will help you a little bit. It says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that he was very God, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, Jesus. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Skipping a little bit to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he likewise, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then skipping over to verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in order to pay the penalty for sin as our substitute, the person of Jesus Christ had to be of infinite value. Had Jesus been only a man, even though a perfect man free from sin, he would not have had infinite value and his spiritual death would not have had infinite value. Only by being both God and man, because the person of Jesus, with two natures, be of infinite worth, making his substitutionary death of infinite worth. God accepted the sacrifice from Christ since he was sinless and perfect. And only Jesus, the God-man, could fulfill that which the justice of God demanded. Jesus paid for an infinite amount of sin in a finite amount of time. And this is number 14 on your handout. The assumption of a human nature by the Son, Jesus, is not a change in God. And this is the wonder of the incarnation. Not that God's become smaller or something different, but that God, the real and true unchanged God, takes flesh, 
takes the form of a man, of a servant. The Word, who is above suffering in His own divine nature, suffered by appropriating human nature and obtained victory over suffering. What was my thing on that one? Victory over suffering, okay? As 1 Peter 4.1 says, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, we know that Christ's human nature suffered. We may say that Jesus suffered and died on the cross according to his human nature, but what suffered was not a nature. This is what we talked about several lessons ago when we talk about the communication of attributes. That it is the person, the, the person of Christ, who is both man and divine. Um, we can... It was the person of Jesus that suffered. It wasn't the nature, okay? It was the person. And this is number 15 in your handout. And here is the good news of the gospel. The eternal Son of God came to exist as an authentic man. He had a body and a soul. And that soul was tormented on the cross. He was an authentic man by the power of the Holy Spirit. In becoming man, the Son assumed our humanity and so was one of us lived a holy life of obedience to the Father, which culminated in the offering of his life on the cross as a loving sacrifice of atonement for our sin. Thus, the Son of God, who is impassable as God, truly suffered and died as a man, and as a man truly rose bodily from the dead. To say incorrectly that the Son's divine nature suffered would wrongly conclude that he did not truly experience authentic human suffering. Simply put, the person of the Son tasted death the only way he could, humanly. The fully human resurrection of Jesus not only authenticates the reality and importance of human suffering, it equally ensures that sin and death and the suffering that they cause have been vanquished. The suffering and death of the Son incarnate is the Father's answer to human suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For if we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And in conclusion, to be perfectly frank, impassibility is a difficult doctrine, both hard to understand and fraught with hazards for anyone who handles it carelessly. Our study is not to explain the mystery of God's being like a detective might solve a crime. This is number 17 in your handout. In the words of Augustine, the best we can do is to erect a hedge, a hedge around the mystery of God's being to protect us from misunderstanding the God whose ways are past finding out. The church's teaching on divine impassibility when properly understood, is part of that protective hedge. And we tear it down at our peril. I like to think it of, of bumper bowling. If you've, if you've ever bumper bowled, you know, they put bumpers so that your ball can never get out of the lane. That's what the, doc, the doctrine of impassibility tells us what God is not. And it, that's, that, that's that hedge, that bumper, so that you don't get outside the lane. And also, I need to make it clear that I don't think it's automatically a heresy to believe that God suffers. I think it's a mistake, but not necessarily a heretical mistake. And this is number 18 on your handout. 
Once you pull on the thread of impassibility, a lot of other threads come along. One has to give up God's immutability, his changelessness, his eternity. And if God responds in fits of emotion or depression, then he is not immutable. And if not immutable, then not eternal. So a passable, suffering God is a very dangerous idea. It's dangerous because it undermines the Christian's confidence, assurance, and hope, especially in times of real hardship. If God is subject to emotional change, how do we know whether he will stay true to his promises? His gospel promises might change as quickly as his mood swings, if that were the case. And if God is vulnerable to emotional fluctuation, what confidence do we have that his own character will remain constant? His love might not remain steadfast. His mercy may no longer be eternal, and his justice can guarantee no future victory. This is number 19 on your handout. The truth that God does not suffer is at the heart of the gospel, making it truly good news. This is especially in contrast to the bad news of the new anti-orthodoxy, which has become something like, God is in as much trouble as we are. The incarnation of the Son of God and his subsequent passion is more glorious, more mysterious, and more loving because God in the person of Christ experienced what God in himself had never experienced, namely human suffering. In the incarnation, God made human suffering his own in order to transform suffering and redeem human nature. So the good news of impassibility is one of hope. When life's most difficult trials hit hard, the plan of our personal and loving God does not waver because he is a God who is immutably impassable. That's it. Questions? Johnny, did that answer your question, or do you need to ask that question again? Or Keith has a question. We'll get back to you in a second. What we see in the Old Testament, we find was only true and possible because of the coming of Jesus. So if Jesus hadn't have come, there there are things in the Old Testament that wouldn't make sense, such as God not judging sin. He overlooked that. So I'm wondering if some of these passages that people find hard to understand, like God grieving, are those passages only possible because we were going to have a Savior who was both God and man who could grieve? And so yeah, maybe those I've, Old Testament I've, I've passages actually read that. Looked into the Trinity. I, I, I have read that, that those are um, looking forward to God becoming man. And I didn't, you know, I could have made this into three lessons in one lesson. So, yes, that, there are a lot of people who will say that these uh, anthropopathisms used in the Old Testament are looking forward to Christ actually becoming man, someone who does grieve, someone who does suffer, someone who does cry, someone who does sleep. Um, So yeah, I I think that's true. 
And by the way, you asked a question last week about will we be immutable in heaven? I don't think we will be. We're still going to learn. But I've read some theologians who say we will be impassable when we get to heaven because we're going to have a new body. We're not going to have all those physiological responses. Not perfectly impassable, but uh, we're going to have true joy. We're going to have true love. It's, it's not going to be driven by passions and body physiology and all that. Did I answer your question, Shawnee? many ways she wants to know how Jesus displayed his impassibility the main way he displayed it was God's accepting of his um, death on the cross as pain for our sins okay yeah, I think Yeah, you know, and this is one of the things we talked about last week is, is, and it's hard to get inside the mind of Jesus. He doesn't have a switch that says, okay, now act in the human nature. Now act in the divine nature. So he slept on the boat, but he walked on the water. Okay, it was, that's a divine action, okay? But he used human feet. And while he was sleeping, he was, you know, upholding all creation, Okay. So, as far as impassibility goes, um, I would say the main way that manifested itself is on the cross. And it was, it was important that he was impassable because that is the backstop for Christ's human payment of all our sin. Any other questions? Yes, Terry. Number 13. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Yes, Jen. Number 18. Fits. I was just trying to get you to see. Sometimes when I pick out key words... I try to pick out his word as repulsive I can, as I can to make you see that God, you know, if you just see a God who's in fits up there and pulling his hair out because people are sinning, you know, I'm trying to use metaphor myself, you know. Yes, Rick. 19 is, and his subsequent passion, his passion, subsequent passion, Basically, what I was doing there, I was trying to answer the question that um, a lot of theologians say, well, if you have impassibility, then you have a God who's not passionate. Yes, he is passionate, and he displays his passion. It's just not subject to wavering like ours, you know. It's not. Okay. I have one um, quick question. In quoting um, 
Wayne Grudem? Yep. Yeah. We'll talk about that after the lesson. I don't want to discredit Wayne on the, in a public forum as much as I already have. She wanted to know if I'm getting the time out. I'll conclude here in just a quick second. Uh, she wanted to know if someone denies, for example, the doctrine of passability from a PCA pulpit, would there be any discipline? And Tim says, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Although you can see it's in our confession. And to be an elder, a teaching elder, a ruling elder, you have to agree that the Westminster Confession is a summary of our doctrine of faith in, in Scripture. So um, let's close in prayer. Good question. Our Father, we thank you that you do not change. We thank you that you do not have wavering emotions, that we can have trust and confidence in your love and that we can uh, look forward uh, to a steadfast, um, application of Christ's death on the cross and that by trusting in him, Lord, we can be assured that we will see him with our own eyes one day thanks to his incredible sacrifice. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.